Hello, this is Tushta Krishna Das, and you're listening to ISKCON Denver podcast, where you can hear all of our classes and kirtans. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming to our Sunday Feast Live on Zoom. Uh, we're, we're very excited with the magic of internet. We've been able to, uh, uh, what's the word, beam in one of, uh, one of Bhakti's most uh, ecstatic propagators. Uh, Raghunath Prabhu is, um, hopefully, he can't hear me. I'm, I'm glorifying him right now. I'm not sure if he can hear me or not without his headphones. Uh, but he is, uh, I was thinking about earlier, and, and Tush Prabhu knows him from a little bit back, so I, I'd also like Tush Prabhu to give a little bit of an introduction. Um, but Raghunath Prabhu was part of um, a very popular band in the early 80s called Youth of Today. And essentially, it was uh, the trendsetter for so many movements that have taken place in the nonviolent movement, in the, in the, in the just music uh, movement in general. And then uh, starting a band called Shelter as well uh, has, has had so much influence, profound influence on so many people around the world. He's also very well known as a, as a um, phenomenal yoga teacher and yoga teacher trainer, uh, every year holding amazing retreats in India and, and traveling all over the place teaching yoga. Another thing uh, recently that Raghunath is, is very much known for is uh, the very uh, dynamic and uh, relatable podcast uh, that him and, uh, him and another devotee, Kashtuba, have put out, Wisdom of the Sages which is one of the number one podcasts and, uh, on Apple Podcasts right now. Uh, and so we're very grateful by the magic of internet to have you with us, Prabhu. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here, you guys. Beautiful Hare that you're doing this Sunday feast. Hare Krishna, Raghu Prabhu. Hey, good to see you guys. Yeah. How are you? So we, uh, we have some questions for you, Raghu. And, uh, but before we start, um, yeah, it's really special to have you with us. Um, I remember back in 91, or maybe 90, when I was going to the Laguna Beach Temple, late 80s, early 90s, and uh, a group of my friends, the Hayworth brothers, they were in a band called Gorilla Biscuits. And uh, yeah, there was Hard Stance and Seven Seconds. And I forgot that you were friends with those guys. And um yeah, and then, and then I remember in 91, Zach De La Roca got into his, went, went to his garage. And then they were talking about this monk, uh, this, and, and uh, in the Ray Capo. <laughs> and uh, I never got to know you so much in those years, but I heard so much about you uh, from these devotees or from these friends that I was hanging out with in high school, early college. You and went to just, school in Irvine? Yeah, University High School. Okay. Yeah. And then just the incredible outreach and then hearing about their culture, lifestyle of the straight edge scene. And then, uh, yeah, and then years later, um, seeing you in the yoga scene and then having the good opportunity in Santa Barbara some years ago with Tukaram Prabhu and a few others uh, doing that That's retreat right. there. And just that very inspiring with your, just your whole presentation and weaving in Krishna Bhakti uh, along with your yoga teaching and yeah, just dynamic in all ways. Anyways, to honor to honor the time that we have with you, um, yeah, we're, uh, we're we're ready with some questions. 
let's dive in. I have a, I promised my kids uh, to watch Star Wars and to sleep, camp out tonight. So I have two things on my agenda right after this. All right. Uh, watch one of the Star Wars episodes. Try not to fall asleep because I'm notorious for falling asleep if I turn anything on um, asked after eight o'clock. And then um, it's the first sort of nice day we've had here. It's been very rainy and cold practically every day on this pandemic. So everybody's been out today. I can't talk right now, kid. Here's one right now. Uh, no respect. So anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I can't, lost my train. So, oh, so today was a really nice day. So every, all the kids want to camp out, so. All right, exciting to hear. Okay, well here, uh, Let's we dive have, in. We'll dive in and then uh, it looks like we're going to have to get you sometime in the future again because we have quite a few. So today at least we'll try to go for these four. At your service. All right, Raghu. So the first one here are, what are some ideas and conceptions about life in general, spiritual life, Krishna consciousness, Krishna consciousness, the movement, parenting, etc., that you had that changed dramatically as you got older? Good question. Um, you know, there's different vantage points in life. I got into bhakti and taking it seriously and chanting 16 rounds when I was 22. And now I'm 54. Not only at 54, but practically speaking, every five years or every 10 years, it's just sort of a different vantage point. Just like there's vantage points. I remember when I was growing up, I wanted to be a baseball player or I wanted to be a cop or I wanted to be, you know, we have these ideas of what we want to be when we grow up. Then you get to this point where like, wait a second, I'm older than all the baseball players. I'm older than all the, you know, like I'm at a point, like if I wanted to be a cop, it wouldn't even take me anymore. It's you get to this point in life where at a different age in your life, you see things from a different perspective. Um, so in bhakti, it was sort of the same thing. You talk about, yeah, we're going to die in the future and this like that. But when you're younger, there's an intoxicant that goes with that age, which is this ability, like I will be able to do anything and everything. And the world has so many opportunities. And very quickly, the world flips and you're on the other side of 40 and then the other side of 50. And then you start hearing more and more how people that you know are dying and it becomes really shocking. And um, I think the real lesson with it is a lesson we say from the get go, which is live each day like you could be okay die dying today. Live each day like today's a good day to die. And um, that is sort of one of the things that maybe hasn't changed. I think I sort of kept that like as a brahmachari, I was a brahmachari for about six years. And then um, that's sort of s something true. Now as a grihasta, as a home with, you know, I have five children, we have a home. Um, you gotta worry about things I never had to worry about. You know, I gotta worry about life insurance. What happens if I died? You gotta worry about a living will. What happens if I die? Where the, who's gonna take the kids? The state's gonna take my kids. You know, you have to start thinking about the future that you never had to think about. Um, 
uh, what happens if one of the kids gets sick. So uh, you, you have to step into a different brain once you, once you get married um, and you have to step uh, out of your brain once uh, you have children as well. So a lot of things when you're single or when I, when I was a brahmacharya, I had to start, you have to worry about yourself, your chant, your rounds and your morning sadhana. And as soon as you meet up with another person, and I think Rihastas can speak for me, then all of a sudden like their lifestyle becomes and you're maybe not happy with the way they are or they're, or, um, they're not happy with the way you are. You have a different standard and they have a different standard. And um, you have some material desires that you never sh like showed your whole hand to her and vice versa. She's got some material desires. She never really shared them with you. And so you're left to deal with another person that you're sort of cemented to. And it's sort of like, are they going to be the weight holding me down or are they want to go too fast? And I, I need to take it easy. And so over, I've been married not super long time, about 15 years. But I think over the years, you just, I, I find like the biggest uh, thing I change is my, um, I was saying it today on our podcast is uh, trade in our expectations for appreciations. I live with this. I want them to be like this. I'm demanding they be like this. They should be like this. Who do they think they are like this? And instead of like always like having the sniffer for what's wrong with people, appreciating people. And that's sort of been like a godsend. That little statement probably saved my marriage, saved my relationship, saved my, you know, uh, relationship with my older kids. It's it, instead of finding where everyone's gone wrong, which I always had a tendency to do as a brahmacharya for some reason, I guess because you're so disciplined down yourself, you're always, you know, weighing up people up, up to your standards or at least I can speak for myself but it, you're forced to become incredibly tolerant of others and if you want to be strict with someone you want to control someone control yourself and um <clears throat> I found it's the best way to lead also is you lead by you know it's the same thing you lead by your own example and the interesting thing is people come around if you want per, if, if they see you're actually sincere and you want to change people change and if they don't change and there's this other facet of bhakti that comes in. Can I, can I just be tolerant? Can I learn to love people that are not like me? Or am I only going to like people who do everything I do and do whatever I say when I want them? You know, when I say do it, then they, those are the people I'll love. Am I going to reserve love just for that? And so it really forces me uh, to really stretch. Can I, tell, can I tell a funny story? It has to do with this. Of course. I, I never wanted a dog. I'm more of like, I mean, we're more into cats because cats are sort of like independent and clean. And my wife's always wanted a dog. <clears throat> and so every, we lived in New York City, couldn't have a dog. Then we rented a house. We lived upstate, couldn't, the landlord wouldn't get us a dog. Then we finally moved into our house and my wife was like, yes, we get to have a dog. And in my mind, I was like, oh man, she's gonna, she, I've been promising her dog for years and now she really wants this dog. I don't want a dog. But I just, I had to go, go along with it. And sure enough, it's like these, if you ever have a puppy, they just like, they're yapping all the time. They're, and I had to like, I really wanted to wake up early in Chan Chapa. When you have a lot of kids, just to get a little sadhana in is so difficult because the kids are all pulling you in different ways with school or with work or with or, or, or the older kids with work or with 
um, driving them here and driving them there and like can really drain you. So I remember if I can just get up before the kids get up, I can get some quiet chanting in. And so, you know, you know, these old upstate New York houses, I'm walking down the stairs, trying not to wake up the dog, trying not to wake up anybody. Because once that dog gets up, it's over. You're not getting any peace either. I'm tiptoeing down these creaky stairs. And as soon as I hit stair number three, it's like, the, the stair creaks, the dog barks, and it's like, and I'm, you can't put him back to sleep. And then I'm trying to chant. And I got this puppy just like all over me, like screaming, barking. And I'm trying to like be tolerant. And I'm frustrated with this puppy. And every day for like a week, and I feel like I didn't even want this dog. No one else has come down here taking care of this dog. Why aren't the kids taking care of this dog? Why isn't she taking care of this dog? And I'm just like sitting there trying to be connected and spiritual and whole. And all I want to do is murder a puppy. <laughs> and so I thought like, this is wrong. This is a wrong thing going on right now. To want to have to kill. Why am I chanting? I'm chanting to be tolerant. I'm chanting to be loving. I'm chanting to be kind. I'm chanting to be broad-minded. I'm chanting to be compassionate. And, and then Chris is saying, okay, you want to be, you want all those things? Try this one on. I find that Krishna gives me everything I need. And sometimes it comes in the form of, of a furry white Labrador. And you know what? It's important to learn to, to love the things that don't necessarily you love. It's, or to appreciate. And um, I can't expect my chanting or even my bhakti yoga practice to just give me shanti. It's not going to be there. We're not here for shanti. We chant the maha mantra. We are telling the universe, turn it up. I'm ready. I'm ready to grow. I'm ready to evolve. And that's a, that's a tall order. The maha mantra doesn't give you what, there are mantras that will give you what you want. There's Lakshmi mantras, right? There's mantras for healing and health and snake bite. There's, the Maha Mantra doesn't give that. It gives you what you need. And that's a scary prayer. Please give me what I need. Ah! Who wants to pray for that? So this is, a, I've been forced to uh, learn to like appreciate a little bit more. Learn to love a little bit more. And learn to be a little bit more selfless which is all these things were asked for anyway it's amazing people get divorced all the time it's sort of like why because a person's not stroking your ego that's that's just what we're trying to overcome in the first place if you're having a problem with your ego then you must be whenever someone's going through a problem one of my students are going through a problem i always say to them don't you understand you must be chanting really sincerely because krishna put this right in front of you so you can deal with it he must really care about you. But the thing is, we think the chanting is just going to make all our problems go away. Life is like, right? If we look at our life as, let's have some fun. You're not going to win that one because life isn't always fun. There's hard work, there's hardship, there's chronic disease, there's addiction, there's a heartbreak, there's people leaving you. Life isn't always fun, but if, you, if, if your mood as a bhakta is, how can I grow? How can I grow today? How, I'm here to evolve. Then every day is quite fascinating because there's always a way to evolve. You get a lot of wealth, you get a lot of success, you got to get a lot of accolades. 
Don't let it go to your head. It's all temporary. Don't let it intoxicate you. You'll lose everything. You're devastated. Hurricane Sandy wipes out your house. What? It wasn't yours in the first place. There's always a place to grow. And as, as bhaktas, we see ourselves on this world, in this world, to evolve. That's why we're here. We're like, we're just, I mean, haven't you ever felt like that, Tusta? Have you ever felt like you're doing time in the material world? Here to learn some lessons. And if you don't learn them, you just got to come. I mean, I think we can all safely say that we've made stupid choices. And then we get that same choice comes up again. Am I going to go north or south? And oh, I choose south again. And then we have to keep learning these lessons. That's, that's what samsara is. It's a cycle of bad choices again and again. Sometimes it happens in the course of the day. I overate breakfast. Oh, I overate lunch. I overate dinner. Like that is your some. It is like a Fibonacci spiral. It just goes bigger and bigger. It happens in seasons. Oh, I, I fell in love. I romantically fell in love. Oh, she's not the one. Three years later, she's not the one. I found a new one I really love. She's the one. I thought she was the one. No, she's the one. And so people do this and they do that type of circle and it gets bigger. That circle gets bigger. It even goes into previous other lives. We've been making not the same bad choices um, due to some trauma in our childhood. We picked that trauma in our childhood from previous bad choices. We've been making bad choices for lifetimes in circles like that. And this is what the Buddhists and the Hindus called samsara. And our bhakti yoga is like this access point to act differently. And all these hurdles we're going to run into in life is our chance to act differently and not act the same. Beautiful. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for, I really appreciated you unpacking the substance behind our chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's stir it up. Stir it up, Krishna, I wanna grow. <laughs> Beautiful. You get, you get some peace in there too, especially if you've been chasing tamas and rajas, mm. you'll naturally get peace. But in bhakti, it definitely stirs it up as well. Mm. Thank you, Raghu. Um, okay. All right. So we got a few more here. Some people see you as having charisma and fame. At a young age, you were traveling, performing in a band and had fanfare. How do you relate to fame? What are your realizations and insights around this? You know, it was sort of a, a blessing. And some of you probably had a type of fame in your own workplace. Mine was music at a young age. Fame is like an energy and um, like electricity is an energy and energy isn't good or bad. But when you don't know how to handle that energy, it can be super, like when my six-year-old was two, he used to just toddle around the house and then he would reach up on the counter and he'd grab a knife. And the interesting thing about knives, they fit right into electric sockets, don't they? It's, a, it's as if they're made for them. They're just... Now, knives aren't evil and electric sockets aren't evil, 
but knives in the hands of a two-year-old, that's problematic. So electricity can also turn on the lights of a dark city and make us be able to stay up and read and we can talk on Zoom. So that energy of electricity is not good or bad. It's just how it's used. And so um, I didn't really know how to use that energy. So my, I, I, I wasn't one of these guys who's really wanted fame so much, but I got in a position where it started getting bigger and bigger. And some of the bands I really looked up to, we started getting bigger than those bands. And then we started headlining those and then sort of more money, you know, more money came. And then the, and we know as Bhaktas, we know that the illusion of the material world is that I'm the center. I don't want to serve the center. I want to be the center. So what happens when people get any of the six opulences, right? Beauty, wealth, renunciation, strength, any of those. And some were, some were born with, or some get handed to us at a certain phase of life. If a person has one of those, very strongly, it becomes pretty problematic unless they, unless they're like sort of an electrician. Like when the wire's down after the storm, they really need a qualified electrician to climb that pole and put up the wire. So in the same way, if you have this excess of beauty, excess of wealth, excess of fame that most people don't have, you're going to find a little universe of people that start to worship you. You ever meet someone who's just got a lot of money and people just want to talk to them? I got, I have a lot of clients that are just incredibly wealthy, like ridiculously wealthy. And it's just sort of like people hang on every word they say, you know, they'll, they'll say something and five people will laugh. <laughs> it's just like, there's just some, there's a mystique about their wealth and their, their power. And there's people who are just so beautiful. It's like, Wow. Like, you, I mean, I can even say as a male, I'm a heterosexual male. I'll sometimes I'll see a beautiful guy and be like, it's a beautiful man. You know, just, it's just like beauty is so powerful. It can just stop you in your tracks. And then there are people also feign on beauty, beautiful people. What do you need? You want, can I get you something? And they use that their whole life as their winning formula. Their Platinum American Express card, their beauty, their legs, their, you know, their muscles, their strength, their good looks whatever it is, their, you know, their, their charisma, whatever it is, they use it as their winning formula to be the center. And so what they've done is that opulence has fortified the illusion that you are the center. There's only one problem. <laughs> You're not the center. That's the problem. You can find enough people to say, yeah, you are, you are the best. The problem with it is, it's not really you. And so what'll happen is it'll start to break you inside, especially as the material, as the things you held on to materially start to fade away. Your money fades, your beauty fades, right? Your strength fades, your fame fades. There used to be a show on VH1 when I was younger. Anybody know what VH1 is? It was like an MTV. <laughs> so they used to have a show called, I can't remember what it was called, but it was something like, whatever happened to... Peter Frampton, or they'd sit like rock, some rock and roll celebrity and be like, yeah, whatever happened to him? I, they were huge. They sold out the New Haven Coliseum. Whatever happened to him? And then he's like, just you know, bartender at a local bar. He's like, oh my God. Imagine having that much fame where you're headlining arenas around the world and now you're a bartender. <laughs> it's actually, like we laugh, it's actually devastating so the problem with 
the illusion that I am the center is it's not real. You can't fool everybody forever. It starts to break away. It starts to fade away. And then we're left in incredibly deep sadness. So in my life, it happened to me at a young age when I was 22. And I'm luckily that I sort of like, I was spiritually inclined. I was into, into, interested in spiritual paths. I was interested in clean living and vegetarianism. But really, I was, I was really interested in bhakti as well. And so everything really spoke to me about the illusions of fame. Because I felt like, okay, all these people like me, but I'm just the same idiot I always was. It's not like I'm an enlightened being. I'm just, a, I've just tricked them or something, <laughs> you know? I have really nothing more to offer them than I had before I was famous. <laughs> so I think the fame helped me realize that, you know, it's interesting because we were big, but we were not super duper big. We were just big within our community. But at the same time, that band, the Beastie Boys, do you remember them? Mm -hmm. They were getting really big. And we were just like, because they were friends of ours and we were watching them get so big. It was like unbelievable. And I remember, and at that time also, all these bands of our genre, big record labels were saying, oh, this band could be the next big thing. This band could be the next big thing. So other, some of our other friends' bands were getting these bigger record deals. And I had to think, because I was, had a really loud spiritual calling, and I had to think to myself, hey, man, maybe you can have that. People like you. There's all these major rate record labels now. It could be a whole new world for you. And then I had some like sobriety that said, dude, you're already big. Do you think more bigness is going to make you happier? The, the bigger you get, unless you can harness that energy, the sadder you get. Because it exacerbates these things that the yogis always warn about. Where, what is the original pollutant of the jiva? Kama, Kroda. Loba, Moga. These are the original, even before everything was organic, the soul, the pure spirit soul still was covered by these pollutants, lust, greed, anger, envy. And the more you grow with you as the center, the most beautiful, the most famous, the most loved in the material world, the more, more these things gets exacerbated. Lust gets bigger. Greed gets bigger. Anger gets bigger. So it's a real problem. And so I had to give it up. Not that I even wanted to give it up. I, I mean, or not that I had to, I was begging to give it up because it was so, it was killing me so deeply inside. And I real once you start to think of, once you start to read about the ego and you say, oh, I get it. All my pleasure is just for my ego. It's not even real pleasure. It's just ego pleasure. And once someone shines light on that, you can't even enjoy it anymore. You ever have that happen in your life? Once someone shows like, what's the difference between real pleasure and just pleasure from your ego? And I started to think, yeah, I've just been living pleasure from my ego my whole life. Someone tells me I'm cool. Someone tells me I'm, you know, like my band. Someone thinks it, whatever community you're in, there's a different uh, uh, metric of what's important or what is clout. And so within my scene, 
I had that metric. I was in the red. I was doing good. And it wasn't making me happy whatsoever. I was actually much more happy when we had nothing, when we had no fans, when it was just me and my friends playing around in the studio, screwing around. And so, um, yeah, I don't want to go on any further with that. But thank, thank God for Bhakti. It actually helped me realize, like, you are running very fast in a dead end. There's a dead end and you're going to go. And some people take that dead end for years. I oh, know we got to work harder. Then we're going to get famous. Then we're going to break them. This next record's going to do it. They don't even just do it with music. They do it with acting. They do it with relationships. They do so many things to put anything in their God-shaped hole. There's a God-shaped hole in the heart. And we will shove anything in there. We'll shove adventure in there, travel in there, romance in there, anything except God. But, the, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a puzzle piece. Only God fits in that hole. Nothing else will actually make it fit. So even when you've got a nice relationship, like I have a beautiful family, a beautiful wife, I have great kids. I live in a, a nice place, a beautiful yard. I live in the forest. Big deal. There's a God-shaped hole that still has to be. And that, for a devotee, always has to understand that. That there is no alternative route except putting God in that God-shaped hole. And then when you can do that, and that's the beautiful thing about being a brahmachari is you learn that joy without having anything. I ha that is my real joy. The brahmachari takes away every bit of material pleasure you have. You like staying up late and partying? You can't do that. You like watching movies? Can't do that. You know, you, you, know, you, you like girls? Can't do that. You like, you like eating a lot? You can do that, but only what we feed you. You know, and so it's sort of like brahmacharya is like, no, 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 no. And you know what's interesting? And if you've lived in a brahmacharya ashram, you've probably seen this is after you strip away all the fun, how about buying things? You can't buy anything as a brahmachari. It's nothing to buy. How many robes are you going to buy? Seven <laughs> robes. I had, I had three robes and everybody thought I was indulgent. You know, okay, two robes. You know, you buy a new pair of sandals. Big deal. There's nothing to buy. Where are we supposed to get our pleasure from? So I found in the Brahmacharya Ashram, one of two things happened. People craft. Um, they would just be like, I can't do this. This is too much. This is, I'm going to lose my mind. It's not, not fun. And they sort of hop the fence and you never see them again. Or they start to find a connection inside. Their pleasure becomes more subtle. They go inside to find their pleasure instead of going out to find their pleasure. And those who can actually make that connection, they can, they can get a real taste for bhakti. Oh, beautiful. I was really appreciating, before going to the next question, I was just really reflecting how when I look back at the kind of people, you know, I was involved with and seeing how they took off in certain sports or, you know, certain professional surfers or soccer players and, you know, 48 now. And then I think, wow, the mind, the mind will be, wow, if I just kept it up, I could have maybe also been successful. And like you were saying, if that hole in the heart isn't, if we didn't have those years of that inner development, I, I liked what you were saying too, because then without that inner development, it's so challenging not to envy others who have gotten famous sure. or successful or athletic or top martial arts. It could artists. have been me. Yeah. It could have been me. And uh, yeah, so that it, it, 
what you share just really helps dissolve that envy in a very practical we have, Whenever there's a feeling of envy or bitterness, we should understand, as devotees, we should understand we're doing something wrong. Devo some, I was, I was uh, in a holy place recently and somebody showed me this really cool book. And I said, oh, it's a great book. I'm looking for this book. I was like, where's the devotee that wrote this book? He goes, uh, he hasn't come around. He's a little bitter. And I'm thinking to myself, how could people write esoteric books and be bitter? It's like, they, how can you, <laughs> how can you say you like have dr dr driven to LA from New York and you've never seen anything all along the way? It's like you miss these fundamental steps on the ladder. If you're feeling bitter and resentful, you haven't imbibed the ABCs of Bhakti. Because in Bhakti, nothing happens to us. Everything happens for us. Everything is for our growth. And if you're just sitting around blaming people that have wronged you, you've missed the whole point completely. Now, don't get me wrong. I can get bitter. I can get angry, but it's, but we should have programmed in our default. As soon as they're like, who does he think he is? How dare she? As soon as that mantra starts to blurt out of our mouth, we should have a bing, red flag should go up. Don't they know who I am? As soon as we say stuff like that, a red flag should go up. I am way off track. I'm way off my spiritual path. So that bitterness is a common thing. And there's two, there's two ways we can go in this world is we can become deeply grateful and feel so fortunate and see how the world is working um, for our growth, working for our growth, or we can become bitter as we get older. And it's like a, you know, I use the analogy like a, you know, blueberries, raspberries, Lilacs, if you're into gardening, lilacs, uh, right? Roses. Someone who knows gardening, you cut them. You cut them way back. How much do you cut those lilacs? Way back. You cut them way back and what happens? Ah, they start to blossom in the spring, out of control. And what happens with the berries? Way back. Now, if you don't know what's going on, you're sitting inside and you see some gardener out there and he's just sawing down your thick, mature lilacs and cutting all your berries that were so good this year. You could get actually super angry. What the hell are you doing in my garden? The material world is pruning us. It's lopping. You know what a lopper is? A lop, it lops the, it's lopping us. It's pruning us. And you know what it prunes? Well, I'm 54. It prunes some of my beauty. <laughs> right? It prunes my ability, right? Sometimes it prunes, sometimes the material world prunes my wealth. Sometimes it prunes my health. Sometimes it prunes people I love, people I love die. I have a, one of my kids' school teachers was a woodworker, master woodworker, and chopped his whole hand off one day. Oh, God. Sometimes the material world prunes your fingers. <laughs> Sometimes it prunes your home. I had a bunch of uh, students that lost everything with Hurricane Sandy when it hit the East Coast. Lost everything they thought was them. Lost it. Have to rebuild from scratch. What happens when the material world, you get chronic disease. That happens common, right? What happens when the material world starts taking away things? You have two options. Right there, you have two options. One is 
the famous mantra of the materialist. Why me? That's unfair. Why me? And the next one is the mantra of the spiritualist, which is, how am I supposed to grow from this? This must be a benevolent force behind me that's helping, assisting my growth. And then we have firm faith and there's a benevolence in what appears to be tragedy. It's gain disguised as loss. And we start to, you know, we start to develop this feeling like a dropity with her hands in the air. My life is in divine hands. I fully trust you. Or Vidura, when Vidura is getting asked to leave by uh, Dhritarashtra, he's been such a loyal brother to Dhritarashtra. And he's, and, and, and because Vidura will just speak, are you foolish, my brother? Why are you taking the advice of your foolish son? And when Vidura was asked to leave, Vidura had every good reason to be upset with Dhritarashtra. But instead, his mood was, I see the Supreme Lord working through Dhritarashtra so I can leave and go on pilgrimage. What a nice way to see the world, that everything is working for you instead of the whole world, sorry, is working against me. That's, that, that's the philosophy of the bhakta. It's very powerful. Nice. The word is pronoia. You know, ever that? It's like the opposite. It's like a, a new expression coined to describe a state of mind that's like the opposite of paranoia. Whereas the person suffering from paranoia feels that uh, people or beings are conspiring against them. Someone with pronoia feels like, the entire world is conspiring to do me good. That's the power of bhakti. And that's, 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 especially if you have a default of why me? That's some people's default. They got it from the parents, the victim default. They, or they, and they picked it up from a previous life, why unfair. If you find yourself saying that on a regular basis, why me, it's unfair. They don't appreciate me. You should understand this is like stinking thinking. This is like bad thinking. It has to be corrected, noticed and corrected or else you're just going to suffer. Devotees don't play that victim role. And I, I get it because I'm a, I've got the demon in me. And so it manifests when I feel cheated or hurt or brokenhearted or let down. Could happen to me. Wow. That's okay. That'd be a nice song. No stinking thinking. No stinking thinking. Bad thinking. How's it? How's it? By the way, we get some big ones we got to really work <laughs> through as well. I've had some very big ones I have to work through. You have to really step back from your situation and you got to be like, why did that happen? I've really struggled with some, but, but because I'm a devotee, I know that once my, I go towards bitterness, I know I'm off track. Thank you. Wonderful. How's, uh, how's your time before uh, movie and camping time with the kiddos? Uh, we have uh, 15 minutes if that's all right. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, 
So what's your relationship with commitment in regards to spiritual life and material life as well? What does it mean to you and how has it developed over the years? My relationship to commitment or commitment in spiritual life. Can you say it one more time? Yeah. What's, what's your relationship with commitment in regards to spiritual life and material life as well? What does it mean to you and how has it developed over the years? Uh, well, commitment is a word that uh, spiritual traditions all over the world have sort of like rally behind. Uh, the idea of commitment. The mind is whimsical. The mind wants to do whatever it wants to do whenever it feels good. So there's a power in making a commitment. Okay, you're going to be my wife. Like what is, what is a marriage? A lot of people say, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a piece of paper. It's not a piece of paper. It, it, the idea of the samskara of marriage that you do is if you just actually just sort of analyze it, you're in a holy place. Even if it's not a church or a temple or a synagogue, it could be the ocean, could be a, a beautiful beach that means something to you. You're in a special place. You're with people that love you. You're with a holy person, could be a friend or a priest or something. And, and, and um, you're in front of what you perceive as God and you're making formal vows in front of your friends, the people that love you in front of this, in this holy place, you're making a formal statement. And there's a power in that commitment because, excuse me, because anyone who's married knows that marriage is romantic and blissful and joyful. And then it's not. And then you're left with life. And um, the mind is always looking for an easy way out. But we don't get good at anything in the material world unless you're committed to it. You can't get good at sports, can't get good at your career, can't get good at anything, any, any type of martial arts. You need to put in that time and then you reap the fruit of it. And then what will happen is eventually you'll realize like, oh, I get it. That was my mind again. Crap. I made the same foolish choice again. And so we live in a world where it's sort of like, it's really sad. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little older. So I came from, a, I came from a, a culture where when I was young, if you were divorced or it would be like, did you hear about that? Their parents are divorced. Don't go over their house. Their parents are divorced. Now it's like everybody's divorced. And even in the Harry Krishna movement, everybody's divorced. It's like, it's become such an, an option. There's a horrible analogy, but I'll use it, is when Cortez, you know, the invader Cortez, he came and invaded South America. And he came with only a few hundred people on a couple of boats. And they had to fight all of the Aztecs for like this massive civilization. And he ordered his people to burn the boats. And they were like, what do you mean burn the boats? What happens if they overcome us and want to kill us? We have to escape. And he says, we're going to burn the boats because if we don't win, we're going to die. 
And there's something powerful in these like resolute statements that hold us whenever the mind starts going left and right. I say that all the time to myself, burn the boats. There's no option. The problem is we leave so many options. You could even, people even get married and they could be thinking, is she the one? Is he really the one? Maybe he's not the one. Maybe it's just the one I'm with. If you're married, she's the one. It's that simple. If you're married, he's the one. Congratulations. Now, of course, there's always like these extreme situations, but we can't let that be the norm. Better we just learn how to deal with it. Because what are we really dealing with anyway? We're dealing with ourselves. She makes me so. She doesn't make you anything. You make yourself that. If you're getting to be like that, guess what? It's in you. It's, it's our own self-work. So commitment, be it in anything, but especially in relationships, it only helps us really blossom more. And we have to also apply all these other things like this idea of victimhood and um, everything's happening for me. It's not happening to me. When we apply these like simple sutras to our life, then even in tough situations, we get exactly what Krishna wants us. Um, gets us we, we get exactly what we need for our growth. It's easy just to be envious. Oh, look at that couple. I hate them. They're so happy. <laughs> Something like that. It's, it's like we get what we need to grow as people, you know? And I find the, the more uh, tolerant and loving I am, I get whatever I need anyway. It all works out in the, in the end. And oftentimes, more often than not, I have to do some changing. I like to think that kids have to change, wife's got to change, that dog's got to change. I'm the one who's got to change. But I'm so in my own ego that I just think it's everybody else. It's my whole environment. It's my atmosphere. It's the damn weather. It's Donald Trump. Whatever it is, everything is a mess. But I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty together. That's illusion. I want everybody to change, but I don't want to change. Big problem. Let it sting. That's how we grow. We got to let it sting. I don't know if I answered all of your questions, but it was, it was a tangent. Was it any good? Yeah. Your, your segue, your, uh, your quote unquote diversions are always good. They're not like, because Stuba says like, I'm like a Labrador who chases squirrels. When we do our podcast and he's always got to pull the dog back. <laughs> All right. Well, we have we have some time. We got we have one more, and then um, there's quite a few other questions too, which I, I spoke with you earlier today. That maybe, um, yeah, maybe next month or sometime in the summer we can have you on again, and um, and I even do some visit you. I want to come visit you guys sometime. Yeah, we're we're uh, well. That's something we can talk to you about as well. We got a project coming up, and all right. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I'm just really excited to be back in touch with you again, and. Um, I uh, look forward to the development of our, our community's relationship with you. Okay. Have you ever had to give something up? Parentheses, a possession, a mentality, a mindset, a relationship, etc. 
in your devotional life in order to take the next step forward? You might have, you kind of unpacked that a I think little. I bit. sort of touched on all this yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. But I, I will say you can't escape what you are. Meaning Krishna is going to ask you to give up what you're attached to because he wants to see if you're ready, ready to relinquish it. And once you give it up, you get it right back, but in a, in a cleaner way. Like I gave up, for me, it was music. I gave it up. I gave it up at the height of its career. I just said, Krishna, you could, I don't want it anymore. I'm ready just to be I'm ready to do whatever you want. I'll do anything what you want. And then I found myself doing music. Then I started that band Shelter when we were monks. And that was like a whole, and it was the same thing. It was exactly the same thing, but we were all brahmacharis and we were singing transcendental lyrics and we were, we were practicing self-control and controlling our mind and a strict sadhana and stuff like that. So it wasn't any, it's just sort of like a, I always tell people like in, in when they're doing uh, yoga, there's two Raghunaths, Raghunath A doing a handstand and Raghunath B doing a handstand. Raghunath A is thinking, okay, everybody's watching me. They probably think I'm pretty cool. I'm just holding this handstand. Now I'm going to put my legs in Lotus. Watch this. Uh, they're going to be so impressed when I do this. Oh, check me out. So sometimes in a yoga class, especially if you're very good at yoga, you can do some yoga poses and just blow people's mind. And there's a lot of e ego in it because it's almost like a performance and you're showing off your, um, your skill and your um, strength and your breath and your beauty and whatever it is. <clears throat> that's one handstand then there's another raganath here saying okay now i'm doing a handstand i'm doing a handstand because it like circulates my blood it brings this lower energy from my uh, lower chakras to my crown chakra um it is like uh, strengthening my body it is purifying and detoxing detoxifying my body why because ultimately this body is not even mine it's this gift i got from material nature and now i'm going to use this gift so i can give back on the outside, they look like two handstands, but they're two very different handstands. Mm -hmm. We have to give up everything connected with the ego. And then Krishna gives us the same thing back often, mm -hmm. but in a very clean way. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Every, everybody's step towards bhakti. They're gonna end up doing the same things anyway. They're gonna get married, they're gonna have kids. But how they are married and how they have kids is going to be different. How they raise their children will be different. Right? And every day, Krishna is going to ask you, just like sometimes on my computer screen, you get this drop down box that says, time to upgrade the new. And you're like, uh, don't show me this. Don't you click, you keep pressing that, don't show me this. Never showed me this again. But every day, Krishna is going to be asking you, it's time to upgrade, man to upgrade your lifestyle your habits the way you speak to people that your thoughts it's time to upgrade your concept of recreation it's time to you know your little habits it, it's it's time to upgrade to the degree that we press never let me see this message again it'll go away and we can have the beautiful dhoti and the korta and the appropriate haircut and all the malas and we're just going to be hitting a ceiling. We'll be able to act out the devotee thing and even be accepted or embraced by the community. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to be going anywhere in our spiritual life. Mm 
Every time Krishna asks us to upgrade, we got to opt in. Yes, I'm upgrading. I'm going to upgrade today. Yes, I'm going to upgrade today. Yes, I'm going to upgrade today. And as once every time we make that upgraded choice, we start to transform. And it transforms not just you. It transforms everybody you touch. You got a kid, it's going to transform that kid. Well, no, it can't transform. The kid's only two. It's going to totally transform that kid. That two-year-old is taking notes of everything that you do. Well, I got a 16-year-old. It's different. He's The 16-year-old is taking notes of everything you do. Oh, yeah? Well, he doesn't do it. He's taking notes. He may not be doing it now. It'll affect him 10 years from now. Everybody, you have no kids. I got news for you. There's people that look up to you and they're all taking notes. And the same thing is true if you make poor choices, bad choices, problematic choices. Everyone's taking notes and it affects them. I mean, come on, you must have people that you love and then you find out they're getting a divorce and part of your heart breaks. Why? Or you find someone that you love and they get caught up in addiction that they had given up and part of your heart breaks because everything we do, we don't exist in a bubble. Everything we do affects everybody. So be careful if you have this internal um, mantra in your mind, like, ah, oh, this is just my thing. Ah, oh, it's just my little habit. Ah, oh, it's just my little pastime. Be careful if it's a pastime or if it's a pathway. Mm -hmm. Every time we make a choice, it has a ripple effect. The, the yogis of India says, our choices affect seven generations. I can understand how it can affect my kids. They're saying it affects your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids. And it also affects your parents. Like my mom hated the fact that I became a devotee. Hated it. All my brothers, I have like a big Italian family. They all thought I was crazy. They were furious. I was one of the youngest of the seven kids. Furious. And you know what? Here it is, 30-something years later. My mom comes to our farm. She claps. She sings in the kirtan. She was the one that hated it all. You know why? Because we don't live in a bubble. Everything that we do will affect everyone. Powerful. Thank you, Raghu. Hey, Raghu, in, cl in, cl in closing, just for the next minute or so, or uh, we have we have a Nishringa Tortoise coming up in a few days. Mm. Just any uh, words of inspiration from you regarding the teachings of the seventh canto or any your, your connection with Prahlad and Nishringa? Um, yeah, just any closing words to inspire us for this uh, holy day coming up? <sighs> Nishringadev, uh, we worship Nishringadev in our home too. Nishringadev, special deity for us. The deity in uh, Mayapur is they call him Dr. Nishringadev because he's such a healer of people. People go to their prayers to Nishringadev, please heal me so I can use my body in Krishna's service and Krishna as a protector. Um, generally, we don't like to think, oh, Krishna, please take care of me for this or that. I, I'm okay, Krishna. But sometimes it's nice to feel like Krishna is my protector and Shringadeva is my protector. He will vanquish. If you're suffering in any way with ailments of the body or of the mind or even dark spirits or things like that, or you know somebody that does, you just approach Lord Nishringadev. He removes all those obstacles instantly. 
the worship of Nishringa Dev is so powerful. It's almost worth Google searching the story of how they got the deity from Mayapur. That would be a great story for you guys to tell in the Nishringa Chaturdasi, because it's such a fascinating story how they uh, they went after to, to get that deity carved and how long it took and how they got that deity to Mayapur and the, the man who, it's not an ordinary way that they make deities. You have to get the right type of stone and you have to hit that stone because the stone actually has to be alive. Hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> All this stuff is real. All this stuff is real. <laughs> and, and, and it's only these family members who go on for generations that can, that can choose the right stone. So when they first went to get this deity of Nishringadev, it was just, the, the, the guy was like, uh, it'll be done in six months. He said, no, I can't find the right stone. The stone has to be the appropriate stone. It's not like he was lazy. He just couldn't find the right stone. And then he had to carve it. And then at a certain point after it was carved, the deity wanted to leave. And it burnt down the whole house of the guy carving it. And it was, a, it was many, like many incredible pastimes of this deity. But worshiped and love and take shelter of and uh nishring able will take away all inauspicious things from our life thank you ragu prabhu and uh honored to be here everybody thank you for having me i don't know so much and i'm not very learned but prabhu likes me so he invited me so to encourage me thank you we appreciate your uh, just authenticity and genuineness and and uh, Krishna coming through you to inspire thousands of people. So thank you so much for all your service and work. It helps to be fallen. And when you're fallen, <laughs> you have to be authentic. You got no other card to play. <laughs> thank you. All right. We look forward to uh, when the airways open up. We look forward to inviting you out here. And then uh, I'll keep in touch with you for an up hopefully an upcoming session in the next few months. I hope so. And thanks for those who've been listening to the podcast. It's a great way to, um, you meet somebody on the street if you're distributing books or if you're doing kirtan and someone says, hey, oh, there's Uddhava Sandesh. He's from, he, I always see him live. Um, you, you meet somebody on the street and and you can, you got to funnel those people because once you're, hey, I really like the idea of karma. Don't lose those people. Just send them to wisdom of the sages. And then they just get hooked into it every day. Because people can't go to the, do you remember the first day you went to the temple? It's like a little intimidating to go to a temple. Everyone's dancing and wearing robes. You might get the, you might get the courage to go one day, but someone could listen to a podcast in the privacy of the, in their own home. They say, all right, I'll check it out. This weirdo on the street said, I should listen to this. I'm going to listen to it. There was something cool about it. And that is sort of like approachable. And it's the Bhagavatam. The Bhagavatam is so powerful that it can start to create a revelation revolution in your in your consciousness, and then they become hooked. Because people find that their mind wants some type of enjoyment. And so they have so many options of podcasts that they just go to a spiritual podcast and that becomes their food. They start purifying their, their, their consciousness without even realizing it. It's, it's, we're in a great age right now. All this stuff, just like when they invented the printing press, that was incredible boon to the Krishna consciousness movement or spreading spiritual literature. Now we have the internet. This is like a super slingshot. What we could do is spreading the holy name. It's unbelievable. So just create a, create one yourself or send people towards us. 
And, um, you know, if they're your local people, then end up taking shelter in your temple. It'd be great. Wonderful. Thank you for letting me serve you. Thank you, Raghu Prabhu. Thank you, everyone. Keep the Sunday feast alive. I wish I could, I wish I could get some virtual pakoras right now. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you all so much for joining us for this Sunday feast. Uh, next week, we will also have another very special guest. His Grace Deva Madhava Prabhu will be coming from uh, the Harmony Collective in Ypsilanti. So good to hear from Deva Madhava Prabhu. The magic of the internet is making, uh, making it all worthwhile, being, you know, not, not being able to necessarily be in, uh, in proximity with each other, which is ideal, but um, at the same time, be, being able to hear from all these wonderful speakers and personalities. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. And um, stay tuned for information about uh, this coming Wednesday for Nishringanecha Tortasi, um, what kind of events. I know that we'll be um, doing readings in the morning and you can tune in on Facebook in the morning for the Bhagavatam class and reading of the pastimes of Prahlad Maharaj and, and stay tuned for any information about a, a Zoom festival that, that we may organize. Um, but until then, thank you so much for being here, and we'll, we'll see you very soon. Haribo. Hare Krishna. Good night, everybody.